Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and of course, today is no exception. I am back with Mark Newman. Um, he and I have been podcasting really for years. I think he was one of the first podcasts I did uh, when I started back in 2016. Um, I love talking to him. Let me give you his background so you know who he is, and then we'll just jump right into our questions. Uh, he's a recognized expert and international speaker in the field of hormone testing. After over 10 years of developing several hundred novel tests at multiple labs, Mark started his own lab, Precision Analytical Incorporated, where he developed the latest innovation in hormone testing, the Dutch test, which stands for Dried Urine Test for Comprehensive Hormones. I know many, many, many of my listeners use Dutch and are familiar with this. Um, and then, of course, new folks will be listening today as well, and um, you'll learn about some of the cool work Mark is doing. And don't let me forget that there's actually a really good deal that we'll let you know at the end of this. Um, Mark is kind of a, a, a great lab geek and committed to furthering the science in the field of functional medicine, and he is committed to helping healthcare practitioners find the answers they need in their hormone testing and has educated thousands of us on the different hormone tests available and best practices, especially relating to um, hormone replacement therapy monitoring. Mark, once again, welcome to New Frontiers. Always great to be with you, Karen. Thanks for having me. It's always great to be with you. I was just reflecting on the podcasts we've had over the years, and, and we'll put all of those in the show notes, folks, so if you want to go back and uh, you can see the various topics that we covered, um, you know, sometimes different studies that he had been working on, or, you know, when they moved into organic acids, we talked about that, we talked about creatinine, if you really want to geek out, but all of that will be in the show notes. But for people who are new, to Precision Analytical, um, just give me the background on the Dutch test. And also, what was your inspiration for it? Inspiration, let's see, the inspiration for the name came from an 11 hour flight to Sydney um, when we were first <laughs> starting and I had a scratch paper and I was like, this thing needs a, some sort of acronym or something. So that was my motivation for the name was 11 hours on a plane with a piece of paper. Um, so I need to find that somewhere. Um, yeah. But for the, the test itself, I just, I, I love data when I'm trying to figure out like what's going on with someone in terms of their, their hormones. I mean, I've been really narrowly focused my whole career on just hormones uh, and, and things peripherally related to them, but, but it's kind of same topic um, and not very broad. Um, and in just doing that, like for me, I, I'm a pretty skeptical guy. So when it comes to, you know, what's going on with somebody as it relates to a particular hormone, uh, seeing the most information always makes me feel like I, I have a better handle. I talk a lot about uncertainty. So I like, like, I always feel like there's some uncertainty and it's good to understand that. Uh, but the more of that I can reduce then, you know, the quote unquote guess you're making as a provider, because uh, we never know everything uh, about what's going on with a patient is way more likely to be right. And you're likely to help them better. And I think the kind of the vision for me came from digging through the literature and through data as it relates to cortisol and going, mm -hmm. okay, I, I think I know what's going on with a particular patient as I look at their free cortisol pattern, because the literature is pretty clear that, that, that that's important. 
Um, and it, it actually started with this obesity thing of this, there's this very general correlation in our minds about cortisol and obesity. Uh, and a lot of people that were using the testing it was doing at the time were running to these conclusions of, well, my, like, for example, my salivary cortisol must be related to obesity. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll go along with that. Um, and then in digging through the literature and digging through the data, I realized that's not actually true, that the relationship with cortisol is a little bit more complicated than that. And it's kind of this three-dimensional picture. Uh, and there was this big missing piece in what we were doing in terms of understanding that, which uh, was the metabolites of cortisol. And so when right. we started messing around with looking at cortisol and its metabolites, and then overlaying the clinical picture and seeing some really fascinating cases, like er early on, right. I had a, a friend of mine who was taking thyroid medication. And she had this picture of having her free cortisol was low and her metabolites are high. And she said, well, what causes that? And I, well, usually that picture uh, tends to correspond with obesity because your fat sucks up the cortisol and it gets metabolized and it goes in the toilet as a metabolite and your adrenal glands keeping up with this. And you get this weird picture of your cortisol at one level and your metabolites at a much higher level. And she's this skinny little thing. I'm like, oh right. crap, I guess I don't look so smart this time. Um, and then she called me back later that night. And because one of the things I had said is that one of the things that can lead to this pattern, at least in the literature, is hyperthyroidism. And she said, well, that's not me either because I'm hypothyroid. And now, I, you know, now I'm, I'm pretty confused. And she called me back that night and said, you know, I re-looked at my doctor's notes and he told me to take my thyroid medication once and I've been taking it twice a day. And so she had induced this hyperthyroid situation, which led to this really interesting pattern that lined up with the literature. If you dug enough into a lot of it, honestly, was like really old papers where they were connecting uh, the rate at which you clear cortisol with your thyroid status. And there was this, this wonderful picture emerged of the fact that she was chewing through her cortisol too fast because of a thyroid situation, because she, you know, it wasn't her doctor's fault in this situation. Um, you know, she just didn't follow the instructions. Um, and those types of moments were what inspired me to go, okay, this patient cannot know what's going on as it relates to cortisol, unless I have the whole, or as much of the picture as I can see. And so that's kind of where where it began. And then you, you move to the, the estrogens and you get the same thing. Let me, got... let me, wait, let me just, I want to just tease this out. So you started looking at salivary cortisol, realized that that was inadequate. You needed to look at the metabolites. So then you moved to urine and you were able to see, you know, a broad sweep of the metabolites and, and realized that was essential to the story. And then you moved into sex hormones to kind of round the full, the, the picture out. So talk about the sex hormone story, but then also just touch on, um, um, using four dried urine specimen. Right. So, so for us, where we, where we are now is we have, you know, a couple different ways you can look at it. You can look at your free cortisol picture in saliva, which is the very best way to do that. We developed the urine test as an alternative to that. So you could look at the up and down pattern, of free cortisol um, instead of saliva. And we've published our data showing the correlation between the two um, just this last year, I think actually, uh, which was actually a really big moment for us because we're breaking, when you're breaking new ground with something you really need to, and that's what, you know, our conversation today is about is to, is to go to the lengths of validating that, that people can have, you know, confidence in what you're doing, particularly if it's, um, you know, different than what people have done historically. And so, so we started off going, okay, there's an interesting message in the metabolites. 
but we don't want to lose the free cortisol pattern, right? That's where yeah. I got so frustrated. It's like, well, crap, if I do a 24 hour urine on this patient and a saliva test and, and, and that now yeah. I can put the picture together, but the patient's it's broke and it's hard to do, right? Yeah. So that was, that was the, one of the primary motivators for us is like, what can we get under one umbrella? Right. Yeah. So if you go home and collect four times these dried samples throughout the day, does it work? And so there was this big process of, you know, we did it initially and the timing of it wasn't quite right. Uh, you know, we found that if you collected the second urine sample at one hour, like it was really variable. Um, and then so we settled in on two hours because it caught like that whole awakening curve that happens in the morning. You caught in that two hour sample. So we're collecting at waking two hours after waking dinner time and bedtime and creating this cortisol curve. So then the question is, okay, well, now if I've got a reasonable alternative for the cortisol curve, do I also, or how do I also get a reasonable alternative to the 24-hour urine using these four samples? And, you know, some of the details for that are probably too in the weeds to, to go into detail, but it was a pretty complicated process of uh, you know, figuring out how concentrated each sample is and taking sort of a weighted average of those four samples, putting that together and saying, are we getting correlation with the 24 hours so we don't have to collect it? Uh, and we got pretty good data on that. And then we kept kind of critiquing it and optimizing it. Um, so look, one of the things that we, that we did that was, I think, pretty clever um, was that everything in urine is, is reported in in spot samples relative to creatinine, which we went into this mm -hmm. deep dive with last we time. We did, yeah. um, But it has a relationship to how big the person is. And so we found that if we, if we corrected for that based on the known relationships, that that 24 hour correlation went from good to even better. Uh, yeah. So at the end of the day, what we had was a simple way to collect and just more data, um, you know, a broader picture of cortisol and then and then to start diving into the sex hormones to go, okay, like what's the story to be told with estrogen? And right. you, know, you can do a serum test, you can do a saliva test, you can do a urine test and figure out what your estradiol status is, right? But then, okay, if it's high, then you gotta ask why. And that, I think this mm -hmm. test is good at that because you know, asking why could be, well, maybe I make too much estrogen and I need more fiber in my diet and calcium deglucurate and reduced inflammation or whatever. Good, like that's great. Uh, but what if the problem is you're not metabolizing it appropriately? And I've seen, you know, yeah. and early on, it was that same case of like, test a friend and the estrogen's high and the metabolites are low and hey, functional medicine knows how to manipulate that. Um, and so, you know, a little dim or I3C later and you get this more balanced picture and she feels better and you go, hey, this is a pretty good tool at not just saying what's your status as it relates to a hormone, because there are a number of options for that but also getting to pick at that a little bit and go, okay, where, where's that dysfunction coming from? And does it have a more complicated story than just too much or too little hormone or whatever? And so we found that with each family of hormones, um, you know, there's a broader story to be told. Um, and over the 10 years that we've been doing that here, you know, we've learned a lot about some of the right. nuances of those stories of how does thyroid time with cortisol and, you know, all, yeah. all of those, those stories that are told that, you know, every patient has a story and it's your job as a provider to figure it out. And that's what we wanted to do is say, we want to give you a tool to be able to look under as many rocks as you can uh, in an efficient way so that you can get them moving in the right direction. Um, and that's, that's kind of, I guess, the, the genesis of where our testing came from.
It's a pretty exciting story. I know it's a little bit in the weeds for some of our listeners, but the end result is this really useful test that provides a broad snapshot. If anybody has prescribed a 24-hour urine or who's if anybody's had, had to collect a 24-hour urine, you know, unless you're at home, it's really kind of a pain. I mean, it's just a pain. And so the ease that you can collect this with is really important, I think, for a patient adherence. Um, and the fact that you've been able to really figure out how to make it, you know, reliable is just, a, it's, a, it's a real stroke of brilliance. So we can look at all of the metabolites, plus you do have the cortisol awakening um, in there as well. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a story of, um, of, of inspiration. And the other piece that I want to say, and this folks will be in the show notes, is that Mark is pretty interested in, um, publishing the on on the Dutch and looking at and we'll talk about this in um, you know in relation to serum testing and some of the gold standard tools that we're using but I just all the, he's got three publications since 2019 2019 2020 2021 uh, and all of those will be linked to in our show notes um, so why don't you, so talk about the, like the difference between the Dutch and more standardized tests. I mean, you can actually dip into some of your, you know, your publications, like we're all using serum We're we're trained to use serum and, you know, just speak to that. Yeah. I mean, it's an important distinction. Um, And there are, there are benefits to, you know, either world, either the conventional world or this world that we sort of, I mean, you have to be in both worlds. I think um, if you're going to use functional medicine, it doesn't mean you're only using functional labs, right? You're still going to run a lipid panel or whatever. Um, and the thing with those tests is for me as a lab guy, they're super, super boring. Um, they're easy to do. And, and as a provider, that's a nice thing in terms of reliability. You know, when you send a, a blood sample to the lab and they're doing a lipid panel, I mean, literally all they're doing is putting it into an analyzer and, you know, pu- and pushing the right buttons. And then, you know, it does all the work because it's, it's wonderful technology. It doesn't take very much sample. It's fast as can be. And there's, there's no reason to deviate from that. There, you, you need to be, that's one of my sort of mantras is you need to be compelled to lead gold standard methodology. Like there needs to be a compelling reason, you know, to do it. And it just so happens that yeah. with hormones, there are a lot of wrinkles there where uh, these functional labs can really be helpful. Uh, but with standardized lab tests, you get the advantage of, you know, FDA approval in that the FDA is governing over the manufacturing of those things. The labs aren't actually making the test. Right, the labs are are set up, um, you know, appropriately to take these tests from external sources and then to just run them and to report those values and hopefully to make some sense of them for you. So we live in a little bit of a different space. Uh, laboratory developed tests, so LDTs, are things that aren't as standardized that you kind of have to do yourself as a laboratory. So right. um, there are pros and cons to both worlds, and it really depends yes. on what you're testing. So estradiol is a tough thing to test. And that's always a really good example for me when I'm trying to contrast those. So um, because it starts to dip into that space where you actually have uh, you have the potential for improved accuracy by moving away from those standardized FDA approved methods. So the literature is pretty full of this nerdy little conversation about, you know, what's the best way to test estradiol. And you can go do this test where they stick your sample into an instrument and push the E2 button and, and it works and you get a number. Uh, but what you find is that your, your, well, your, your option in serum, other than that is to send it to a lab that's going to do LCMS on it. 
And that is liquid chromatography, mass spectrometry. That's um, a more sophisticated way to do the test. And that doesn't tend to be FDA approved because you're not buying it for someone who says, I made this test here, you can use it. It's more an issue of like, there's, this is the way that this test is done best, but you've got to figure it out yourself. Right. That's so right. Let me just have- let me just tease it out a little bit. So most so FDA, we a lot of us put a lot of stock into things that are FDA approved and lab is no exception. And these are often very simple kits, as Mark is pointing out, and that the and the laboratory purchases these kits um, and runs them. And and yeah, they're they're reproducible. They're they're quite standardized. I mean, the reference ranges are created by the kit manufacturer. So anybody using that kit is going to have that same thing. And, and I think there's utility in those. But if we're going to move the field forward, we do have to have these lab developed tests. And, and you know, moving into LC tandem mass spec, as Mark is talking about, is, you know, moving into, you know, the, the, the more sophisticated technology that's going to let us see more. And there is a, it's a very important um, piece of moving lab science ahead. And so go ahead, where were right. you on that? Well, and if I was to offer you an LCMS test for hemoglobin A1C, you would be wise to say, no, thank you. Because it's internationally standardized. It's an easy yeah. test. You don't need that sophistication. And you just pay your few bucks and you get your tests and, it, and, it, and it's interchangeable between labs. And yeah. when you get into hormones, um, you kind of get into this split world where some of the higher level hormones are more forgiving for those standardized methods. But when you get down to, and estradiol is the one I always use because it's it's the lowest level. So there's like, I think about between a thousand to 10,000 less estradiol in a sample than there is for cortisol. So cortisol is a lot easier to measure. And if you're measuring cholesterol, it's even way yeah. higher than that. There's a really easy test without all that much sophistication, right? But when you get down to estradiol, now we've got more of a challenge. So if you look in the literature and say, well, which, which method works best, those FDA approved tests are quick and easy and inexpensive. When you get down into that postmenopausal range, so that means low level women, that means men, that means kids, you have to have those more sophisticated methods that have to be developed by the laboratories themselves. Um, and so you're in a little different space. So it's not space yeah. that's governed over, governed by the FDA directly because they're directing a group selling a lab a test that they can use, whereas these LDT tests, um, which is again, that's a space I've always lived in, um, is it's a little bit different. And you're more as a provider dependent on the competence of the lab. Um, that's you know, a very to, good point. Yeah. So you can't lab. you can't compare results across labs. So if you're doing if you're doing a Dutch um, LCMS analysis, you want to have your follow-up also be with Dutch. And you definitely, I call you guys Dutch. Everyone calls you Dutch, but it's precision analytical. Um, Either way it works. (laughs) But you need, so, so just keep that in mind. If you're, if you're new to using lab testing and you're kind of teasing this through that even kits, I mean, if you do a kit test through Quest, you want to follow up with Quest. You know, you don't want to do go over to LabCorp or ARUP, even if, you know, I, I, I would argue even with those FDA approves, you should probably, you know, whatever your baseline test is, you probably you want to stick with the same lab for your follow up. And if you're using lab, you know, develop tests, um, yeah, you want to make sure that you're trusting the lab that you're 
working with for sure. Yeah, it's nice to stick with the same methodology when you're looking at a before and an after and that sort of thing. Because lab comparisons get kind of complicated when you switch between two labs, but also between two methods and heaven forbid between two samples. So moving from urine to serum. Uh, Oh yeah. but, But I'm also a big proponent of like when it comes to hormones, as complicated as they are, that serum and urine complement each other really well. Because there are things in serum that you just can't measure in urine, like SHBG, things like that. That's a different topic. Uh, but for us, it was to research this method and figure out the specifics of how to do it in terms of collection, how to do it in terms of instrumentation. And, and then, of course, the never-ending uh, game of figuring out what some of these different patterns mean. Um, and then it was a really important step for us to say, listen, if people are going to trust this, we need to take first the validation data and get into the peer-reviewed literature so that you know that it's being um, you know, scrutinized in terms of looking at accuracy and reproducibility. And for us, then it goes, of course, beyond that in that, you know, for estradiol, as I mentioned, we needed to show that over menstrual cycles and between different people that when you look at the gold standard, which for estradiol is a particular method of serum. um, And when we correlated those two, we got really nice um, data that we were able to publish to show that this is a reasonable alternative to that for estradiol, because that's where it that's, begins. Before you go fishing yeah. in the metabolites, let's make sure that the parent hormone that we're that we're trying to tell a story about uh, actually lines up with gold standard methodology. So that's what they showed. And again, this will be in our show notes that 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 eat for for estradiol. Um, you know, the Dutch actually correlates with serum, which is really cool. But talk, just talk to me about define validation, and you know, just a, just briefly what, what validation is and, um, so, you know, what you guys did. In, in my mind, I sort of split it into, into two categories and they're not, they're not cleanly defined categories, but there's the analytical validation side of things and the clinical side of things. So analytically, I want to know, am I getting the numbers right? So, you know, after you develop a test, you need to be really rigorous about accuracy, do things interfere with your test? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, do we know that the numbers are right? Um, that's kind of the first level of validation is obviously if I test the same sample on Monday and Tuesday, and I get a very different story, um, that you have nothing to work off of, right? So the first thing you need to do is make sure that there's stability and accuracy in what you're doing. Um, and then especially when you're in this world of, um, non-standardized types of tests, then there's a matter of like, well, what do the numbers mean? Like, because the, the, a phrase that I like to use is meaningful differentiation. Like that's what a lab test really offers you is meaningful differentiation. And so we wanted to go through, um, you know, a pretty rigorous process there too, which is, is really never ending because with each, with each family of hormones, you've got all these different questions that you want to ask. So we start simple, right? So the first thing we had to show is that the thing that we're doing correlates to a 24 hour collection. The thing that we're doing correlates to the serum measurement for sex hormones. But then when you shift to cortisol, it's like, okay, now the question's different. The question is, does my urine-free cortisol match up with my salivary-free cortisol, right? And the the clinical validation, some of it's been done, right? So if you want to test salivary cortisol, you don't need to prove that it matters, right? You can go into the literature and it's- it's lots of it. Thousands of papers that say that this is meaningful. Here's how we want to do it. The timing, let's include the cortisol awakening response. So we went 
through all of that. But that's relatively easy because it's so established that we just need to establish that the that our test is accurate and reproducible uh, and all of those things. Whereas with our Dutch panel, it's breaking new ground. So we've got a lot more work to do in terms of right. validation, which is why it was so important for us to publish that, uh, which has become a passion of mine. Uh, so we've got multiple people who are digging through our data uh, and we've got some papers actually that just got submitted. Well, actually the last thing we got accepted was we had three abstracts accepted from the North American Menopause Society, right. um, which was really right. exciting for us because that's conventional world. And yeah. we said, hey, here's our data as that's it relates right. to different doses of estradiol patches, different doses of estradiol gels and different doses of estradiol creams. So what we're able to show is that the people that are testing with us in real time, just patient data, are getting the relationship that you'd expect to see. And what's fun for me then is you can overlay with that the clinical data that's out there on patches and gels and say, okay, awesome. we know which doses of these are actually clinically effective. So let's, so is there coherence between what's going on clinically and what we see in our results? And we've found some really, really encouraging things with those, which again, we were, we were able to, to publish in abstracts and then those are then followed up with, with full manuscripts, the first of which just got submitted yesterday, I think. Um, and then we've got you know several behind them. And that's, I think it's what we owe the industry to say, if yeah. we're making claims that yeah. are provable, that it's really incumbent upon us to go and put those to, uh, to the test. And then you know when the data falls the way that it's expected to, we get to celebrate. Um, and when it falls in a way that's unexpected, then we all get to learn something and we just have to be, you know, big enough to put that out there too. And there are, you know, there are always some surprises along the way where we as industry make assumptions. Um, and sometimes we learn otherwise when we get into the weeds on some of this stuff. Well, I want to ask you about some of those surprises, but I just want to kind of back up and corral together some of what you said. So the Dutch panel is, you know, four different dried urine spots and it's looking at you know, metabolites and, and it's looking at sex hormones and metabolites and cortisol metabolites, et cetera. But as a part of it, you also do this salivary cortisol awakening. So I just want to distinguish that there's two different yeah, specimen so, collections so. if people didn't capture that, but he did say it. And, you know, there's plenty of data on, on, yeah. on saliva, as you pointed okay, out. To clarify that for us, it's the Dutch complete is an all urine panel. The Dutch plus is where we say, okay, I want all that same stuff, but I want my cortisol pattern from saliva because the literature has taught us that there's one variable in saliva that you cannot get in urine. And that is this, as you've referred to it, the cortisol awakening response, which is to get the salivary cortisol right as you wake up and 30 minutes later. And what the literature teaches us is that that's a really good, like mini stress test. Uh, so the, th the chemistry that goes on when you wake up is the same chemistry that goes on when the bear chases you. And so isn't it nice to have a way to say before and after that to see if your stress response is exaggerated, which puts you at higher risk for depression and things like that. Or if it's flat, then you're obviously gonna be struggling with energy and, and things like that. And that's a unique variable that we wanted to add. So Dutch Complete is everything else. And the Dutch mm -hmm. Plus is exactly the same, except we're getting the cortisol pattern from saliva which includes the diurnal pattern, which is similar, but adds the cortisol awakening response. 
I think we really pretty much here just get the Dutch plus, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great tool. If you haven't done the cortisol awakening, you'll find it um, not only clinically useful for you, but also really motivating and powerfully impactful on, um, uh, for our patients. Um, I, I, that, that's been my experience, uh, when, especially if it's imbalanced. I mean, it can really motivate people to make some broad lifestyle changes. Um, in fact, honestly, I, I'm just thinking of, of someone who, a hedge fund guy, just this young, amazing hedge fund guy. I really liked him a lot, but he was really kind of living in hedge fund hell. And given his family history and his cortisol awakening response, it was like, he really looked like a heart attack waiting to happen. I mean, you could just sort of see the the stress impact in his, in his numbers. And, um, we talked about it, frankly, and he had other inflammatory patterns going on. I mean, it just warranted a, a, a good kind of sit down conversation. And he ended up leaving, moving to Africa and starting some micro funds over just he, he transformed his existence. <laughs> it's just like it's just a really neat story and moved more into his own sort of calling. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I, I had some updates from him. I haven't heard from him in a while, but maybe if he's listening. Yeah, people like that update. tend to have, um, you know, a, sometimes a pretty wild cortisol awakening response that correlates with all that stress that they've got. Yes. Going on. Quite frankly, I think of that as a doctor yes. pattern because most of the doctors that test with us have that, that extra Massive. balance in the morning, which is fine short term, but it's something that we, we want to address because we know that it carries with it increased risk for things that you don't want to be experiencing long term. And it can be a, you know, a helpful tool that way. Yes. Sure. Yeah, it really, it's just one of my, one of the cooler stories. Um, so surprises, I'm just curious, like what might, what, what, what may, may have been unexpected in your, you know, analytical exploration and prompted you to switch directions if you have anything. Yeah, um, you know, it, there's so many interesting things to dig into um, in in this field, and I think you know somewhere along the way uh, there definitely have been some something that surprised me, and they, they go in both directions. Like sometimes you go into something with the assumption that it's, something's not going to be a useful tool for a particular situation. So like the topic we were just talking about, um, I had been so it's been so entrenched in my mind that saliva was the better way to monitor topical hormones um, from th that was something that surprised me along the way. This may be too long of a story for today, but seeing this, the way that the dosage in urine scaled up in an intuitive way in urine was something we started the company. I told people like, I don't think this is the best tool for measuring transdermal estrogen. And after analyzing all of the data, the literature data, looking at the clinical picture, and also looking at the kinetics, which is really something that you, it is hard to find data on, is that, for example, if I take an estrogen gel, you actually get a yeah. response that correlates with clinical change to bone mineral density, whatever, but it's fast. It goes up and down really fast. So you're shooting at a moving target. And what we found in urine is it actually tracks really well with the dose. It averages out that up and down throughout the day. And when we hit values where you expect to see clinical change and you look at the clinical studies, there's a correlation there that says, oh, okay, this is tracking not only with dosage, but with the clinical changes that the, the literature shows. And when you hit those lower doses, when you hit clinical failure, you're, you can see that the results actually, actually see make it. a lot of sense there, right? So that That's was something cool. that surprised me on the positive side to say, hey, right. this is 
this is better than I think. Let's publish some data because I think this is going to be a really terrific tool for people. Yeah. Compounded estrogens and, and things like yeah. that. Um, Let me and- just say, I think, I mean, I think that you were, you know, nudging people away from using it for transdermal, you know, in our previous conversation. So that's a, that's a really cool shift. And this is probably some of the content you're going to present at the North American Menopause Society Conference, these findings. Yeah, that's, that's the, the data there is patches, gels, and creams. Cause if awesome. you, you would be shocked at how little data there is on creams. We have so many people in our industry that love compounded awesome. creams because they're so convenient. Yeah. Um, zero outcome studies. And there's only one published study in serum, one that shows this little up and down pattern that's probably too fast to catch. And so we said, wow, this is an area where uh, if our data aligns with, uh, with the dosages, and so there's a lot more work to be done in terms of, you know, we can get into that a little bit later about what's sort of on the horizon, uh, but it's a great starting point just to show um, the clinical utility of the test for that, and I and I probably should just mention, so I'm not misleading people. I'm. You have to ask these questions about specific hormones because th- what I've just said about transdermal estrogen is actually not true about transdermal progesterone, and that's a whole longer longer story about whether you should be using it uh, to to balance estrogen, anyways. Uh, but the the urine levels don't scale like they do with estrogen because it's so lipophilic, and you know, so it's a comp. Those, all these stories are complicated. So that, but that was an example. Well, people are going to want to know your, so then in which case, what's the best specimen for progesterone? Um, This is where we fall into this assumption, right? That for every scenario, there is a lab test that gives you useful information that gives you meaningful differentiation. I would argue that the data tells me um, that progesterone when given transdermally, there's not a lab test that's going to give you meaningful differentiation. Uh, but the clinical data, which I know you discussed before with Dr. Saltiel, would also tell us that it's not proven to protect the endometrium if you're on estrogen. So, you know, I, I'm more interested in pushing people away from topical progesterone when you're on estrogen, not because my test doesn't work with it, which is also true, uh, but because <laughs> it's not, it's not proven to work, but there, there isn't a test that has been shown to give meaningful differentiation between no therapy and therapy between one dose and another dose. Um, and it's a, a long, complicated story that I've, you know, I've, I've written about a, a fair amount. Um, and it's, it's a long story, but I, I don't think the data supports the wild high variable, variable numbers you get in saliva or the numbers that lag way behind in serum or in urine. I don't think wow. they're, and, and that's an assumption that was really important for me to break out of is to right. say, one, my test is not useful in every scenario. And two, there isn't a test for every scenario that speaks to the clinical picture to ask the most relevant information, which gets into answering your question as well on the negative side with a surprise that I found with our test that I'm not so sure works as well as I thought it did initially, which is when you take vaginal progesterone. So when you take vaginal progesterone, you know, it's actually a really strategic way to take progesterone because it actually hops into the uterus at a really high level. You get this uterine first pass effect. Um, But as it turns out, what's going on in your body fluids, urine included, doesn't actually represent that. There's no fluid that represents what's going on in the uterus. So when we started off, I, in error, told people, hey, I, I think this is an effective way to test vaginal progesterone. And then after digging into the literature more and digging in our data more, I, we steer people away from that to say the, the best marker for systemic exposure when you take it vaginally happens to be serum. 
And yeah. the best marker for what's going on in the uterus, which is the primary reason you're taking it, is nothing. Is to right. follow the literature that says these doses are proven to work. And the lab testing is not super helpful to tell you you got it right. And making Maybe that concession. Ultrasound is, periodically or something. Yeah, you know, and and what you actually do as a provider in that sense is probably not an area I should be speaking into um, <laughs> as a chemist. But yeah, yeah you, you need to be asking those types of questions and understanding right. that the limitations of the laboratory testing are such that we can't really tell you what's going on in the uterus when you're taking progesterone that way. And so that's been, that's an example of something where I, I led off with a steam of confidence thinking like, oh, this is good also for this. And the data has corrected our thinking to, to us discouraging its use for monitoring the appropriate dose of progesterone when taken that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. That's really interesting. Um, all right. So, I mean, I think we're coming back to your, the Dutch plus, you know, with the cortisol, which just it's what we use here all the time, but um, is helpful. And we still, particularly depending on route of delivery, want to, you know, include serum in our analysis for some of these or at least for progesterone. And I think you would still agree that testosterone is probably the case, but estrogen, you're solid in urine. Yeah, I mean, it, the question has to be, what hormone are you taking? What route of administration? And, and, yep. and I've got a little testing matrix that I've made for people to say, here's where I prefer this test, yep. here's where I prefer that test. I think um, for progesterone monitoring, I think urine works really well for oral. Um, and I think for, for vaginal hormones, nothing really monitors the uterine exposure very well. Um, so it's a, so it's a complicated thing, but for testosterone, I, you know, serum is always the gold standard, I think for testosterone. And that's one of the areas where in doing the validation, as you creep into the clinical validation, you know, we've learned a lot about both the utility of the urine test, but also the limitations of the urine test when it relates to the androgens. And there's a, there's kind of a complicated story there um, that it took a while, quite frankly, to understand at, uh, at a high level uh, and then to, to, to try to disseminate that to people to where it's a really useful test, but again, has some limitations where um, you know, the, in a lot of cases where that's a focus is that using its serum and urine to complement each other is probably the strongest position that you can be in, particularly when you're talking about male like TRT therapy, this is a really fascinating story in, in urine uh, yeah. that has a number of layers to it that really can help uh, with therapy. But when it comes to, did I get my testosterone dose right? Uh, serum has still got a leg up when it comes to testosterone. Um, and I think that, that that's important for providers to know that. But uh, I don't know though, that. I mean, I would, I would challenge that that's not where we, the buck should should stop. I think it is useful. And I think most of us do obtain it, but having the metabolites again has been useful. I'm just thinking of, you know, PCOS patients and how it's really helped us discern intervention, you know, to have both pieces of the puzzle. Right. So and speaking of testosterone replacement therapy, I think that that's where serum, I think is a really essential. Yeah. Tool. When you start talking about PCOS, that's where I think the Dutch test really shines. Is yeah. you get to, you get a look at not only your androgens but how it's being metabolized because we yeah. know at the heart of PCOS is insulin 
and insulin is going to push those androgens down that 5-alpha pathway towards those more androgenic metabolites. You know, DHT is three times as potent as testosterone, and we want to see that pattern. How is it flooding down that pathway or down the non-androgenic pathway? And that adds to the story of PCOS um, pretty significantly. So I think that's it's a really strong tool for that to be able to see progesterone, estrogen, sure. and the metabolism patterns. Um, along with, with the rest of it uh, as well. And that's part of the thing that makes functional medicine so complicated is when you start looking at what does a person who has low or high levels of a particular hormone look like? And there's a lot of overlap, yeah. right? Between having high cortisol or low cortisol and you know imbalances in some of these other hormones, which is why we tried to make this test as broad as possible so that you can see dysfunction in each of those families of hormones um, and, and try to really identify what's driving, you know, the dysfunction in, in a particular patient. Yeah. So there is a little bit of a learning curve. I think you have a good educational resources. You've got a good clinical team, uh, you know, that people can access, that clinicians can access to walk through their laboratory data. And you can do that as much as you need until you're comfortable with it. Um, the testing matrix, I mean, anything that we're referencing in this, we'll, we'll gather for show notes or, or link to um, the appropriate page in the, um, at the Dutch uh, website. What are, let me just ask you, sir, pig, piggybacking on this conversation, common mistakes the functional medicine world has made because we're not sort of working with tests that are adequately validated? I don't know about common mistakes, but I do, I do think the functional, I mean, one of the things that's great about functional yeah. medicine is they've I, been, I, out of, out of, been out ahead of the curve, right? And I think yes. if you're going to get ahead of the curve, um, one of the things that you need is to have a high level of self-critique. I think uh, right. the, the thing that's hard is nobody knows the cracks in what somebody's doing better than that person, right? But it, it's so tempting to build something and then build this sort of information bubble around it and wait for your critics or your competition to start poking holes in it. And I think we can do a much better job of being, I think, open to self-critique and continuing to grow in, you know, in some of those, um, some of those areas. I think of like, you know, there was a day where you could test thyroid in saliva and you can still test thyroid in urine. And so you can, you can make this story about relevance, but again, I'll go back to my statement that if you're going to do something that's non-conventional, you need to have a compelling reason. And when I yeah. do serum testing and I, when serum testing is done in thyroid, you get a really nice comprehensive panel. You can see, you know, and you could have a conversation about that, right? It's a really nice way to look at that. And then to move into uh, doing thyroid by a, a different manner, um, is interesting and it's, and it's, it's kind of fun if you're a research guy, um, but there, again, you know, there needs to be a compelling reason. So it was developed in saliva, which was then discontinued. You know, you get, you run into these little surprises, like in the renal system, T3 and T4 interconvert in the local environment, right? So if you're, if you're going to base your thyroid therapy on a urine thyroid, like it's, there's just no reason to jump out of your conventional way of doing that with thyroid testing, because there isn't anything additional that we can see that adds clarity to, um, to the picture. Yeah. And I think, yeah. And it's know, not like you're getting, you know, you need to get multiple blood draws. So like cortisol moving into a different specimen is, or is super smart because you can't get endless 
or if you get blood, there's all sorts of issues with getting multiple blood draw you know, assessments with cortisol, lots. So the fact that we can do it in saliva is awesome. The fact that we can look at analytes in, um, in urine is awesome. And so there's a point to that, yeah. But I doing think, a single blood draw for thyroid, it just isn't a big deal. Right. I mean, we don't I need think to another, like kind of the example yeah. I use in my own mind for like a cautionary tale was when we used to, or the industry used to do iodine loading tests. And it right. was, there's this, this whole concept was created and it was an interesting theory uh, yeah. that was ba- based on poor fundamentals and poor self-critique. Because it was this idea, if right. I take 50 milligrams of iodine and I catch a 24-hour urine, gosh, people who are iodine deficient seem to have less in their urine. That was an observation that somebody made. Yeah. Um, but there was this really basic fundamental problem that you don't spill out the 24 in 24 hours all your iodine. About 20% of it is just in day two. And nobody bothered to look at the kinetics of that and scrutinize it and go, well, wait a minute. Like, it may not be that you're iodine deficient. It may just be that, so there was a fundamental problem in the the way that it was set up. And what you ended up getting was anecdotal evidence to affirm that it was working. And when when people really went in and scrutinized the model, it it didn't need tweaked. It was like- Did that happen? What's that? It, who's, I mean, it was scrutinized and published on? Well, I know, um, you know, ZRT developed iodine testing and I, I was there at the time. So I know that was the direction that we were headed was, well, this iodine loading test, people love it. And so I was actually yeah. the first one to go, okay, I'm going to go down the hatch with 50 milligrams of iodine. And then I collected each sample. And what I expected to see is a curve that went way yeah. up and way down, but that it came down within 24 hours. So then you could say, okay, you excreted this much. And the theory is the rest of it, you're holding on to it based on how iodine deficient you were. And so we looked at that first curve and went, oh no, like this whole, like the whole thing just crumbled instantaneously. So we repeated it with a bunch of people and went, oh wow, this is based on an assumption that evidently has never really been scrutinized. And and so the whole thing just kind of fell apart and they went on to develop a spot iodine test, which is an interesting way to just see, you know, if, you're, if your diet is deficient in iodine or whatever, but that concept of load up with iodine and it will give you a window into something and w- will be meaningful differentiation actually ended up being, I think, fundamentally flawed and has been largely Well, discarded. not only that, I think that's, thank God, it's interesting that you are behind sort of eroding that because it did change people's practice. People were mega dosing iodine and, you know, I moved people, I, 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 I treated multiple patients with iodine toxicity who developed um, hyper or hypo or autoimmune thyroid disease as a result. What's well, a scary world if you have a test that you can fail that's fundamentally flawed and you can take literally a hundred times more iodine than you need and still fail that test. So as a provider, yeah. it puts you in a pretty odd spot. Uh, so anyways, that's not to, to rail yeah. on that. It was just a really good example of no, it's where you get out ahead of the curve and you say iodine deficiency is an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. And then this tool was created without enough scrutiny and it, yeah. and it created a problem. And I, in my industry, you know, I've seen the same thing with the HRT monitoring and it's easy to throw stones in 2021 because when you go clear back to 2001 or whenever, when these sort of concepts were coming out and we needed evolution in that topic, like we were not there yet, but as the studies have rolled out, it really has reshaped our thinking in terms of which uh, specimen really gives you 
um, you know, the best information when it comes to HRT. And it really centers around this, this weird thing that who would have ever predicted that if you put a hormone on your foot, on the skin, that your salivary levels will go sky high and your urine and your serum lag behind. And it created this weird paradox of like, okay, you're getting a very different message, which one is right? Like, right. And people theorize a lot about that. And now in 2021, there are dozens and dozens of studies to ask the question, which value actually correlates with the clinical picture? And when it comes to transdermal testosterone and transdermal estrogen, it's not saliva. Like that value that goes so high, there aren't, there's not a single study that affirms that that is actually speaking well for tissue. And it's created this kind of weird thing in our industry where people think that serum testing is, is, is bad. Um, whereas the issue with some of that is just sometimes that value goes up and down so fast that it's hard to measure, but it still is the fluid that your hormones swim around in all day, right? So it still is telling typically a story that when you look at clinical change, if you can measure it well, um, you know, it correlates with what's going on clinically. And that's where the urine testing has become this interesting option because it tends to parallel serum in most of those situations, but it allows you to capture over time. So that if you have this up and down, that's rather hard to sort of grab onto with a single test that you can actually, you can actually see those changes happening. And again, for the estrogen, that's become, I think that's where we're sort of headed with the estrogen, but it needs to be you know, further testing done and more research. And that's what we're trying to involve ourselves in to say, hey, we can tell this story that makes a lot of sense with the research that's been done when we overlay it. But that's what we want to continue to invest in is to say, listen, to, to take our confidence level up higher, you know, we want to be investing in studies where they're yep. comparing people on different dosages of therapy and then looking at actually monitoring directly that clinical change while measuring those lab tests of serum and urine and maybe even saliva to, to, you know, better establish correlation with lab values so that there's even more confidence in, uh, in using those to adjust sure. someone's therapy to provide again, meaningful differentiation between, you know, people whose status level is, is different based on absorption or, you know, whatever. Right. So it's, so there would be, I mean, what would be fabulous would be to have a relatively straightforward you know, reference guide to the type of HRT being used, the route of delivery, and the appropriate laboratory tests to evaluate, like just having those sort of broadly, all those that, that document. I've spent 20 years putting that thing together. The thing that's really hard, and that's sort of been, I hope, part of my contribution to this industry is to be the guy to spend hours and hours and hours in the literature going, okay, no one's done this in one clean study. So we have to go look at, you know, studies on estrogel and bone mineral density, and then they don't always report serum levels. So you have to right. look at different studies to see serum levels. And then I can look at my urine levels and we can see what happens in these different body fluids and with clinical change. And to say, now I have a conclusion I'm pretty confident in, but as soon as I change to progesterone instead of estrogen, it, it shifts. Yeah differently. And so yeah. going through that has been something that's been um, kind of a passion of mine over the last 20 years is to try to figure out, you know, what are the best answers for, you know, different routes of administration, different hormones, um, and where are the holes where we don't really have 
laboratory testing, like sublingual hormones, people like to use sublingual hormones. Sometimes you can, but the lab testing, none of them really work very well. So knowing that might change your use of that therapy. Uh, But the worst thing you can do is to use a tool that doesn't work, right? Right. Use something that's, that's a bad match for the particular therapy you're going. And then you can end up, you know, really doing a disservice to, um, to your, to your, your patient. And it also yeah. feeds into this traditional medicine critique of functional medicine as it relates to hormones, which they, most of them would say, well, you don't even need to measure hormones and it doesn't really matter. And then that's why for me, it's so important that we get it right because right. there is value in leveraging those numbers, but only if we get the lab part right. And from sort of the clinical aspect, right. Of using the right test at the right mm-hmm. time. That's really, that's very interesting. You know, when I was at Metametrics Laboratory many, many moons ago, I was charged with writing in our laboratory evaluations textbook minerals, like how do we best assess minerals? And I, you know, I haven't dedicated, you know, my entire career to it as you have in in the hormone world, but the conclusion that I drew was very similar to your own. So we had to pick a best specimen for minerals and the data leaned towards um, red blood cells being the best or whole blood being, you know, cause you were getting some idea of what's happening in a tissue. But my conclusion on reading insane amounts of papers was it's, you wanted to really actually look at multiple specimen. And sometimes you would look at surrogate markers, you know, like sex hormone binding globulin for testosterone, you know, sometimes, well, obviously for, for iron, we look at ferritin, but it was, it, it, it's, it's, it's complex, but you do have to kind of lean into what's the best specimen. I mean, we can't order endless amounts of labs. So. Right. Yeah. And I think that, and having, you know, tr- trusted laboratories that are going to give you the best information that they can, but also uh, help to educate on when to leverage that test and when to leverage another test and when it's best you know, to have some sort of combination, because you're right, we have obviously practical limitations in terms of, you know, how much information you can take in and how much laboratory testing people can, uh, people can afford. And that's, you know, that's become a passion of ours is to not just become good at the lab testing, but on the education side, is there so many layers to the complexity of hormones. Um, And, and, you know, we have a team of uh, 10 or 12 uh, clinicians on staff here that use the testing in their practice and they're really well studied and yes. you know they sit there ready to help walk somebody through you know some of those complex cases and at first when you're talking about something as comprehensive as like our testing they're all kind of complicated um, and then eventually those those reports really start to tell a story that you know the providers can can really leverage um, I think to to treat their patients in a meaningfully different way. Um, and that's pretty exciting when, when people that's right. start to pick up some of those, those patterns that help them to, to really solve some of those complicated problems. Sure. Yeah. Again, I go to, I go back to my PCOS cases and, you know, patients with very high DHEA versus, you know, folks with high, you know, dihydrotestosterone or just the, the different patterns that we can see with women. And then also layered into that, of course, a lot of our PCOS patients surprisingly have, you know, imbalanced estrogen metabolism. And I can kind of see that in my mind's eye, you know, just looking at doing a pattern analysis with Dutch. And it's true that the clinicians, the, the, the on-staff clinicians are helpful and walked our staff here through many a test over the years. Um, so just going back to this whole, you know, your broad vision for our field, 
what are some of some areas of functional medicine that you would like to see progress to, further towards evidence-based? I mean, I know this has been a passion project of yours um, for a long time. And, you know, I got to say that I'm thrilled you're, you know, you're putting your time and your, and your team and your money behind investing in, in doing research. It's, there's a lot of effort involved in it, but you're doing it. So what, yeah. what, what would you like to see in general? Yeah, I, I mean, I think as a general statement, I would say that anytime we're using provable claims that haven't really been proven, um, I think there's motivation for for yeah. us to to continue to push into that. So, you know, outside of my area of expertise, you know, whether it's food allergy testing or stool testing, um, you know, you look at the diversity of the ways that people are doing stool testing, both in what they're measuring and and uh, and how they're doing the measurements. Um, you know, all those areas of functional medicine, I think uh, there needs to be pressure on us as an industry to continue to, uh, to push into that. I, I have a particular passion, but I only have one piece of the story for the hormone replacement therapy. I, as I mentioned, there are zero interventional studies done on compounded estrogen. Right. So you have an entire industry flying a little bit blind. I mean, we we learn what we learn from the literature and from the laboratory. And there's a lot of extrapolation that goes on there. And those um, those claims are provable. Right. Yes. Um, and I think that's something that we would like to continue to be involved in, um, you know, and, and there are multiple layers to that. Like for us, you know, there's a lot of clinical data in the literature. So for us to just show the patterns that we see with our tests at given doses of different things, and then to overlay it uh, and to see that there's a correlation there um, with things like transdermal estrogen. That's really exciting because that, that, that kind of fires the engine here. Um, but then again, there, there are different levels to which we can, we can show correlation. And I, you know, so we're trying to really partner with other people in the industry, um, compounding pharmacists, as an example, when it comes yeah. to compounded estrogens, that there should be motivation on, on all of us that are related to that to show at what doses do you get particular clinical outcomes um, because it's a complicated story and it's it's based on a lot of conjecture at this point. And we know that there are a lot of really talented providers helping a lot of people, but there's also some uncertainty about best practices still because we haven't pushed far enough um, into that. So on the hormone side, I think the... Um, you know, the, the, the HRT and that, it's just a really a great area for us to continue to invest in. You know, we've complemented our testing with other things. So we started with hormones and then we added melatonin, right? So if you want mm -hmm. to look at that cortisol right. pattern, gee, wouldn't it be nice to see melatonin? And since we have individual samples, we're able to grab the ideal sample, which is to wake up and grab a urine sample. And that represents all that urine that's collected over the night the literature shows that it correlates well to melatonin that's made at night, which is when you want to be measuring it. Uh, we also added an, uh, an oxidative stress marker. So 8-hydroxy-deoxyguanosine, because that relates to the story that we're trying to tell. Uh, we've added nutrient deficiencies, so uh, deficiency markers. So MMA for B12, and B6 markers and glutathione markers, all of which are involved directly or indirectly in how your hormones are metabolized. Now that story, the organic acid story gets broader than that. And I know there are labs that are, you know, doing broader panels of those. That's an area where I would love to see an investment, um, 
you know, in the functional medicine space, because some of those sort of connections um, are not that well established in the literature. I know we've talked before about like hydroxymethylglutarate, like there's this theoretical connection between your CoQ10 status and how elevated that marker might be in urine. Well, like we peddle in the industry of fatigue, right? Like a, as a cortisol yeah. testing lab, we get a lot of people that have fatigue issues and wouldn't it be nice to complement that with a marker that moves meaningfully when your CoQ10 status changes. But there aren't any studies that have actually measured that marker and CoQ10 status simultaneously. And that's a, that's a doable thing. Uh, you know, there are other markers in there that are uh, conceptually like B vitamin markers that are, when you look through the literature, it's like, well, here are some, some newborns that have genetic problems. When they have those genetic problems, they have this really overt deficiency for B vitamins and these markers get elevated. So we go, oh, okay, there's a potential connection between these things getting elevated and your status for these particular vitamins. But it really hasn't been, yeah. like no one's really pressed into that and said, well, we have the ability to measure those, the status of those individuals in just adults that may have mild deficiencies in these things to see if it does push those same markers up. Like, so some of those are areas where I would love to see our industry, again, be uh, internally skeptical to continue to push into taking claims that are that we're depending on that are provable and and really in continuing to invest and that's what we're trying to do on the hormone side is is that if we're if we're leaning on something for how we treat our patients and it's not something where you can point to the literature and say this is known then I think that's our job to keep investing in that area to take um, our our confidence in using these types of, of connections that were that are well laid out conceptually, um, but, but can be proven at a higher level. I think that's a really good encouragement for us as an industry to just keep leaning into that. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, it's possible. I mean, all of the labs have loads and loads of data and they just need to maybe hire a PhD candidate to do serious right. data mining projects, you know? Right. Um, but it's, so, it's threatening yeah. too, though, because you, you know, if you're making 10 claims and one of them falls away as you scrutinize the data, like that's, I think, the part that we have to be open to um, is taking the wins and the losses as you, as you continue to scrutinize, um, you know, the claims that we're, that we're leaning on in terms of interpretation of, you know, complex laboratory tests. So how does a, how does a clinician who's not going to be doing the dive that you're doing on a daily basis going to recognize, you know, a good lab, somebody with a lot of evidence behind them? Well, I think the first thing is to, is to recognize when you're moving into this unconventional space, right? You don't want to treat um, hormone testing in urine or saliva or whatever, the same way you would treat your hemoglobin A1C, right? Like, I think that's the first thing is to know when you're moving into this space where you're into uh, sort of an unconventional space. And some of the, some of the things that we do as, um, you know, functional test is laid out well in the, in the, in the literature. So salivary cortisol would be an example yeah. of, of that. And so I think, um, you know, the, the lab's can present that type of data, but it's it's when you get into things that that haven't been that well established in the literature that I think one of the real keys is why we're really pushing in this area is peer-reviewed published literature yeah. because it takes the claims that you make 
and it puts them in the hands of a neutral expert to be an arbiter of whether what you're saying actually makes sense and whether the data is actually um, falling as it should. And it it doesn't allow us um, as an industry to put something forward as a concept without asking the right critical questions and and showing supporting data. So I think that's that's a really big key, I think, in terms of um, in terms of so just ask, yeah. right? Just, just ask, ask what, what they've published on, and yeah, look at look, ask them for the evidence on, you know, on 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 the analytes that they're um, that they're measuring. I think that's reasonable. I mean, just as you start, we started this conversation off with a discussion on you know laboratory developed testing, and there's a lot of laboratory developed testing going on, and it's ridiculously important that it's happening. It's extremely important. And, you know, what is that technology and what have they published on? I think it's fair to ask. I think that's a good key to knowing that you're working with someone that's really invested in in doing what they do well and continuing that sort of continual improvement um, of not only what you measure, but how you measure it and and then what we can conclude from the data. Because it's complicated. And... And don't dismiss it. I know that it's an easy seat to take that, oh, that's not an FDA-approved test, forget it. Like, you can't. I remember when when Quest moved from using the Diasor, I think it was called Diasorin kit for vitamin D that was like the gold standard FDA-approved kit to um, using LCTN and mass spec. <laughs> you know, and, and people wanted to just... It, 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 it's no longer FDA approved. It's a lab developed test that Quest did. I mean, and, and, and it's, better. It, it's a, yeah, it's an, it's an absolutely unequivocally better test and it's not an FDA approved kit. And so, you know, you just have to pay attention to it. And with something like vitamin D, of course, there's plenty of evidence that LC tandem spec is better, but um, so don't, you know, don't throw away absolutely don't throw away lab developed testing it's a, it's essential i think for the the life of the industry but yeah i think it's reasonable to ask what they're doing and what they've published on and what the evidence is behind it for the method in fact yeah. we do that here at our clinic people like when we when there are these new tests that we're curious about um we'll often have one of their experts come on and not not dissimilar to this conversation with mark you know and really talk talk about it um what is next? You know, what are you guys working on now? I mean, you have this NAMS conference coming up, which is pretty exciting, but what's in the, what's in the future? Well, I think, I think continuing to push evidence and then continuing to explore, you know, other markers that might be helpful uh, for people. And, you know, we want to give as much meaningful and useful information as we can. So we have kind of a two-prong effort of taking the things that we do now um, and proving the clinical utility and fine-tuning the clinical utility of that. And as I mentioned, you know, kind of the next horizon for us is, is one, to continue to publish the data that we have. Um, um, you know, you mentioned PCOS, and we actually had a really interesting statistical analysis on um, looking at people who are diagnosed with PCOS and the androgen markers that we have. Um, and that correlation is really fascinating and, and uh, very affirming of what we're doing on that front. And so there's an effort to get that out into the literature in terms of what we've already done that, that needs sort of the dots connected and, and written up into manuscripts. 
Um, and then there's that next horizon of evidence, you know, as we mentioned with like, for me, one my passions for that is like the hormone replacement um, side of things is can we, you know, connect with the right groups to show actual specific correlation between values of, of laboratory testing and the, as an example, the increase of bone mineral density as women take estrogen. Like that's, um, that's something that's on my list of things cool. um, to, to get done in the future. And that's, that's complicated because we are a, a lab test um, and we have to connect with, with partners really to make those things happen because our area of expertise mm -hmm. is not in compounding hormones or in, you know, um, some of the, some of the other aspects of that. Um, and then, you know, researching new things that we want to, to measure, to complement the story that we're already telling. Uh, there are a couple other markers that we're, that we're chasing down and it's the same process of, you know, how well does it work from an analytical standpoint, scrutinizing the literature to say, you know, is this just conjecture or is there actually, um, you know, evidence that this is a marker of what, of what we, we hope that it is. Um, and then to push again to that next level of, of showing correlation between, um, between those markers and the things that should be changing as they change or vice versa. So what, like um, any, any, anything, anything you can like that you can tell us you're looking at, or do we have to just like stay tuned? <laughs> you're ending have, with a teaser. <laughs> I, I don't have anything uh, to the degree yet where we want to get out ahead of it. And, uh, <laughs> but I, but there's some, there's some really exciting stuff in the, in the, the literature and in, um, that we can be exploring to again to just complement the picture that we're already um, that we're already um, telling with the markers that we have. Um, so that's that's pretty exciting. And the other front that we're really pushing on is just the education side itself. Yeah, because the honest truth is, uh, I'm a I'm a you know chemistry nerd, so I like that new stuff. But the biggest missing piece is probably people's ability to leverage the information that we're already giving them because there are so many nuances to that. And that's where we've invested in this clinical team and we're investing in yep. educational resources that we want to create for people um, so that they can use, uh, use and leverage the testing for, for all that it has, it has there because that um, that's probably one of the biggest opportunities out there. I yeah. think is just to educate people who happen to be new to hormones, yeah. don't know how to necessarily work with cortisol and its metabolites and the androgen right. metabolites and the estrogen metabolites and some of these complementary things. So those are, those so, are kind of the efforts that we're making. Yeah. And so important and, and doable and very empowering for the clinician to be able to really see that broad sweep. Um, listen, I just, Mark, want to really thank you for this fun dive into what's going on over there in your world and what you would like to see for our industry. I think it's a bar that should be set high and we should all go for it. Um, I want to, I, I also want to remind people, this will be on the show notes that you can access um, a significant discount on Dutch testing. Uh, if you, if you go to dutchtest.com backslash Fitzgerald, um, you'll get some kits at, I think, 50% discount. So that, yeah, that's our, our offer for you if you're new to, uh, to Dutch. So what we love to see people do is say, listen, this is a tool you probably need to have in your toolbox. Like for some providers, 
it's their go-to, like let's screen all our patients for this because there's so much good information. For some providers, um, you know, it's more of a tool for their complicated cases. For some, it's more of an HRT tool, um, but it's a good thing to have in your toolbox. And the easiest way to get to where you can, you can use that when the situation calls for it, um, if you haven't used our testing before, is as Kara mentioned, go to dutchtest.com backslash Fitzgerald, and you can get up to five tests at half off. Um, and what I always encourage people to do is, is if you do that and set up a, a phone consult with our clinical co consults, yeah. uh, a consult, what's the word I'm looking for? Clinical consultants, um, you know, they really do a marvelous job of, of being able to walk people through, you know, what does this mean and what, you know, what are the next steps? Um, and that's generally the process that people use to kind of, again, put this in their toolbox so that you can, you can use it for, uh, those patients where it's really going to be helpful. Yeah. And run one on yourself. I mean, we walked through the same thing. I remember, you know, the journey of sort of ingesting and metabolizing the test and now it's, now it is pretty straightforward for us. Um, Anyway, Mark, it's just great to talk to you. As always, you're up to some really cool stuff over there, and we'll look forward to seeing what analytes you're looking at. I, I will say, and then I'm going to hush, when you did add the organic acids onto the test, you actually didn't increase the price point, which was really nice. Yeah, well, we're working on, on keeping things affordable as well. So yep. um, part of the challenge for us, too, is we, we don't want this for, you know, the 1%. We hope that our testing is available to um, you know, to everyday people, my, that, the, literally the way we set our test is I was asking myself like, what can my mom afford? Um, and that's, yeah. that's kind of where our pricing structure, um, started. And then we, <laughs> as we've increased the efficiency of the testing, we've been able to add those other tests, um, while keeping it cost competitive, which has been, you know, really encouraging for, um, uh, how many people have been able to use the test. So, yeah. Well, thanks again for, for joining me today. Dr. Fitzgerald, it's always great to chat with you. I appreciate the time. Absolutely.